Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Alan Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the intimate. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. (laughs) Today we welcome journalist, author and feminist trailblazer Marisa Bate. Marisa writes extensively about domestic violence... Issues that affect women's lives are at the forefront of her writing, whether that be in Grazia, The Guardian, The Independent, Cosmopolitan, the list goes on. Her journalism is prolific, smart, hard-hitting and very, very moving. Now, any time that families are together for long periods without normal routine, domestic abuse goes up. Throw in alcohol, stress, it's no wonder that during lockdown, the phone lines for refuge and women's aid have been so busy. We talked to Marisa about how domestic abuse is being spoken about more widely than ever before, from the archers to big little eyes, and now Rihanna are discussing what used to be a very private, shameful occurrence. We explore what economic abuse is, how reproductive coercion can go undetected, and why a culture of fancying the bad boy can be so damaging. We hear about the ways in which countries from around the world are trying to support and protect victims of sexual abuse, from code words in grocery stores in France to alcohol bans in Greenland. And Marisa advises us on what to do if you recognise abusive behaviour during lockdown and beyond, and why, if you hear anything worrying next door, you should always call the police. I think there's been an incredible response um, to, to the issue in a way I just haven't seen, you know, um, there was a journalist asking Donald Trump in a press conference about domestic violence, you know, Rihanna's yes. donated millions of dollars. Um, everyone seems to be talking about it. And that is fantastic. And I think perhaps, perhaps because people are trapped in their homes, perhaps on a very basic level, it is easier to understand the predicament of of victims and survivors. At any time that families are together or couples are together for longer periods of time without the kind of normal routine, domestic abuse and violence goes up. So Christmas or summer holidays, if you add alcohol into that mix, and we know sales of alcohol have gone up. If you add into that pressures and strains, not that that's ever an excuse, but if you're facing unemployment or you're facing a loss of income. All these kind of factors tend to impact abusive relationships anyway. And this is what we have. We have this intensification of those things. And one of the main kind of tricks, if you like, of an abuser is to isolate their victims anyway. So what they will typically do is cut these people off from their friends, from their family, uh, from talking and communicating with other people, from seeing other people, from being able to have any kind of semi-private relationship with another human being that they are not aware of and in control of. So in some ways, lockdown kind of 
really aids the abuser. The virus and the lockdown is providing total isolation. And therefore, if you are in an abusive relationship, any potential access to, to support that might have been there, that might have been helping you, is gone. Any respite just by going out to work or picking up kids from the school, you know, at four o'clock or being able to do or go to the gym, any of those moments of respite that you potentially had are now gone. So you are in a very, very, very difficult position. I've also read about reports of abusers using the virus to be more manipulative. So like former partners have been able to get hold of uh, the children during this time. They're now suggesting the children have symptoms and won't return the children. Or if individuals are reporting symptoms, they are preventing them from perhaps seeking the necessary medical help they need by going to a hospital. So, you know, an abuser will always use the tools he has or she has in front of them to manipulate and exert further control. So it is just a really, really terrifying time across the world. From Japan and Spain and France and Australia, they're all reporting the same thing. Really, now it's a case of watching how governments respond because what, what we need is, is money, essentially. Money to bolster services, ring fence services, take over empty hotel chains, empty university halls to find you know, provisions to help get victims out of these very dangerous situations. And I heard that at the beginning of lockdown, there was a real drop in numbers of people calling charities such as Refuge, which have gone up again now. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, why, why do we think that drop happened? Is that because of... Them living at home. Right, because it's just too difficult. Um, some of those organisations said they could hear women whispering. If you're in a small property, there isn't the space to have a private conversation. And also imagine the fear. And then perhaps I think as measures have been announced, people are learning there are better ways to, to access help, which are more secretive. So perhaps that has allowed people to, to come forward. But also, you know, there is a statistic, for example, that a victim will experience, on average... 35 incidents of assault before they call the police. So what you could also assume perhaps from that is that perhaps people weren't calling at first, but there is a limit. There is a breaking point. And as the weeks went by, and we have seen that 25% increase from refuge in calls, the women have hit a limit. So it could be that um, actually families with maybe latent abuse or tension that hadn't yet shown itself under the pressures and the stresses of the situation have now begun to reveal yeah. itself to be, to be that, to be yeah, abusive. Yeah, absolutely. This situation has created this kind of perfect storm for this abuse to rise, but that also a lot of victims have an incredible high tolerance zone of abuse, which is, you know, that they endure a lot before they feel safe enough to feel that they could access help. One of the things that we've seen at work as a GP is that because we're now mostly on the phone and people are not coming in with their children, there's not that excuse or avenue for you to take your kid to come and see the doctor, which then allows you to see the doctor as well because you're in that space and you can raise things which you otherwise wouldn't have the privacy to do so. I mean, what's so important mm-hmm. is sometimes the pauses that people make in their speech, the in, the intonation they make. You know, um, in, in horrible situations, you know, um, you know, I fell down the stairs and then there's a pause and they go, kind of, really quietly. And so we've kind of lost that as general practitioners and we're sort of really keen to try and emphasise to people that there are lots of other ways you can get help. 
Yeah. I was wondering if we could have a little chat about what constitutes as domestic abuse. Obviously, it comes in very many guises, and you've talked a lot about um, coercive reproductive control, um, as, as well as um, economic, which is uh, really fascinating, given that it's, it's gone up a lot, the reports of it um, within lockdown. But could, could you tell us a bit more about that? It's physical, it's psychological, it's emotional, it's also financial, um, and coercive control, which was kind of written to law under Theresa May, and it is, is an offence now. Uh, the financial abuse, economic abuse, was recognised for the first time in the domestic abuse bill went through this year as part of the statutory definition. So we have, in, you know, in recent years, really pushed forward in terms of what that abuse looks like. It can also include things like stalking. Um, there's big calls for children to be recognised as victims of abuse, not just witnesses as well. You get a mix of it all. Um, sexual abuse, the, you know, it's very uh, rare, I think, that you will have just one of those strains happening in your life. That's not to say it doesn't happen, but they tend to uh, kind of work together. The economic abuse has been a really interesting one and in the kind of last year or so and that the understanding of that and economic abuse really is manipulating or controlling somebody's finances and that can be in terms of keeping hold of the purse strings of giving these people a tiny budget um, not allowing them access to their own money to just theft you know there's a lot of women that partners have taken out mortgages in their name they've taken out uh, credit cards in their name, racked up huge debts, racked up huge overdrafts. Um, and so there's a myriad way of that working. And if you think right now, if everyone is under economic pressure, if everyone's incomes have been hit in one way or another, the potential for that to be exploited is really huge. Um, I've done a lot of reporting on how the banks have been responding because for a, for a long time, really, banks were kind of aiding a lot of these perpetrators because, for example, you had to have two signatures to close down a bank account um, or information. You know, if your name was on a mortgage, you were responsible, even if your partner's name was on it too and he'd, he'd stolen a lot of money from that account. So um, the banks have made big progress, slow, but a, a beginning of a culture change in the banking sector of how financial abuse works. And that has such a, a massive knock-on for uh, victims. But I think in terms of what's happening now and, and the recovery of this, you know, not just what's happening in, down in lockdown, this will definitely be a big issue and a, and, a, and a continuing problem, I think. One of the things I've learned from survivors is that nobody knows their abuser better than them. And you don't know what could be dangerous. So... When banks have tried to implement measures to help survivors, a lot of the feedback is that they cannot do anything that might alert the abuser that something is out of the ordinary. Anything. Because the minute they suspect that something is up, you're putting the victim potentially in a very dangerous position. So when you do check in, don't expect them to say, his behaviour is very controlling. Um... You know, it's a, and and or bombarding with messages. I think we have to put ourselves in in the mindset of as a victim and think, how can we do this in a way that isn't going to raise suspicions or sound an alarm? And that can be by just sending a very normal, you know, did you watch Gogglebox or something? And it's just something that sounds very normal. 
I understand from what you were saying that there is a greater preponderance of um, sort of economic abuse, particularly for, for older women. It's not necessarily particularly for older women, but older women are impacted in a particular way for several reasons. Some of those women from an older generation are less likely to be financially independent, to be financially even literate, because they come from a generation where perhaps the man looked after all the money and all the finances. So they are vulnerable in a, in a kind of whole host of ways. They have greater health care issues. They can't work. You know, a lot, there's a lot of discrimination against older women who want to go into the workplace, who don't have a pension. Um, and, I, you know, I remember writing a piece when I was speaking to two women who had worked all their life very successfully and had saved and had pensions and had all these things. And both had been in abusive relationships and both of their partners had just cleared them out entirely. And now they were facing the rest of their life in poverty. And so, yeah, there's a vulnerability there. But in terms of abuse more generally, it's actually 18 to 24 is often uh, cited as the, the group that sees most domestic abuse. Um, Why do we think that is? I think something that perhaps has exasperated that in recent years is the unaffordability of living on your own. We see more young people moving in together. I think there's, there's a vulnerability, isn't there, when you're young, that you want to yeah. believe in somebody more than when you're older. And, you know, that's where charities like Tender are so important. They go into schools um, and do workshops with young people, which is very much about trying to explore through drama what a healthy relationship should look like. And so I think some of the most important work that can go on right now is actually talking to young people before they're even at a stage where they could be a 22-year-old in a flat with somebody in understanding what they should be seeing and what they shouldn't be seeing and what red flags are and things like that. Yes. It feels, I mean, this is sort of a bit gender-biased, really, but it feels like, certainly when I was growing up, we were, you know, we're always told, well, if the boys are mean to you, it's because they fancy you. And those sort of just, like, little lies end up snowballing and becoming part of our core beliefs about treatment, about what to expect and what it means. Absolutely. I mean, if you think of, like, the kind of bad boy, you know, that we celebrate and we forgive, I mean... There are a lot of very famous, high-profile men who have done terrible things, but because they're handsome or because they're cool or because they've made a great movie once, they are forgiven. So there is something, I think, very rooted in our culture about how their flaws, which is a polite way of putting it, are actually part of what makes them great. You know, the fact that they're assholes are why they're so great and attractive and sexy and brilliant and, and a genius, you know. We still have such a long way to, to dismantling that idea of men. And I've definitely fallen for it enough times. Um, haven't we all? Haven't we all? <laughs> right. Uh, it's a very persuasive message. Yeah. So I think, no, I think that's a really good point. Is there a real problem in people not necessarily recognising um, the abuse that's happening within their own homes? Absolutely. Abuse doesn't just arrive overnight. It is a gradual... Abusers are very, very clever. Um, it's a strategy. It's a very, very gradual drip, drip, drip erosion of somebody's sense of self, somebody's self-esteem, somebody's uh, self-worth. The efforts to isolate and control you are subtle to begin with, and that's why they're so effective. Um, the gaslighting, these little measures that are employed, they are tiny little ropes around you that at first you don't even notice. 
and then they pull you and pull you and pull you and then you before you know it you can't move and I think by the time it's happening to you your self-esteem your self-belief your sense of self-worth has been so destroyed that when then if violence happens or sexual violence happens there'll be a sense of well perhaps I deserve this this is my fault I caused this fight. I made him or her angry. And typically with abusers, once that has happened, if there has been a really nasty fight, there will then be floods of apologies, maybe gifts. It's a very, very powerful game plan. And so absolutely, I think it can happen to people and they don't realise for a very long time. And that's the, it can be the same with financial abuse that somebody's sort of saying, oh, I just... I'll, I'll, I'll just borrow this much from you or if you just lend me this much and I'll pay you back or um, why don't I look after these cards or why don't we put everything in your name and suddenly you wake up one morning and there's nothing left in your bank accounts and you've handed over all the power and that's the same I guess essentially within a relationship you hand over all the power because somebody has been you know they're like master kind of jewel thieves they plan these things extensively And meanwhile, you know, a lot of the time while they are eroding your sense of self-belief and eroding your sense of self, they are charming and they are handsome or they are taking you to nice restaurants or they are charming your friends and your family. You talked really brilliantly, actually, about this in a, a very moving article in The Guardian that you wrote about your own friend and um, their very charming but abusive, you suspected, uh, partner and how um, you were sort of being gaslit, actually, <laughs> because you, although you could recognise what was happening to your friend, weight loss, I mean, I, I'd love to hear more about that from you, but, but all sorts of things happening to your friend that was changing her personality. None of the other friends could really recognise it and accepted it. So actually, I, it must have been quite a maddening experience for yourself to feel like, well, is it me? Is it me? <laughs> or is it actually happening? Right. And I think that stops a lot of people reaching out to friends. Because you're like, oh, she stopped wearing she stopped wearing the red makeup and the big earrings she always wears. And you're like, well, maybe she just doesn't want to wear red makeup and big earrings anymore. You know, and you sound a bit mad when you're like, oh, she doesn't wear big earrings anymore. And your other friend's like, well, maybe she likes gold hoops now. And you're like, ah, you know, like, what's going on? <laughs> um, and because of, you know, because I report on it, you do think, oh, do, is this, is this, are you seeing something that's there? And, but again, it was that drip, drip, drip of watching someone I knew so well just unravel and it was like somebody had sucked the colors out of a painting and all you were left was this with this kind of pencil outline of somebody and he absolutely isolated her they moved to another part of the country and she'd tell me she wouldn't go out for three or four days at a time and not see anyone yeah it was very very hard and she was always telling me things and then sort of being like but you know but but we're fine so they're not coming to you and saying this is awful I think he's I think he's abusive they're saying he's done this thing and it's awful but it's fine and we'll be fine and so your your position as a friend is a really tricky one because they're not actually ever saying to you I want to break up with this person or I want to leave this person and what you don't want to do, what I was very cautious of, was not allowing his plan to work, which is the isolation. So you as a friend, you, you feel exasperated, you, you loathe him, but you have to keep your presence and you have to put yourself out of the equation and just know that you, 
being there is far more important because when she does eventually decide to leave him, you need to be there for her. But it, it is very, very hard. It was very hard to watch um, this seemingly perfect person who'd come into her life and it was his answer to all her prayers and they were going to have this wonderful life together. And, you know, he spoke all these languages and he was just this kind of dream person and they went on these dream holidays. And I think her own shame in admitting that this dream was actually a nightmare. A lot of the way this particular individual worked, it was the slippiness of his actions that used to... So, like, if he threw something, it would just about miss her. So he didn't throw it at her, but he'd just thrown a bottle of wine across a room. But it didn't hit me, she'd say. She can persuade herself that he was just angry and he lost his temper. And that was a very difficult situation because I wasn't just trying to convince her. Her, her mother was very supportive of this relationship. Mm. And that's obviously where she'd got some of her ideas around what you could and couldn't endure in a relationship from. And so she would call me and I would try and impart certain messages and then she'd call her mother, who she trusted and had a very good relationship with, and um, would hear a totally different set of messages. If there are some people listening who are recognising some of this behaviour in their own lives, how would they go about changing their situation? Well, obviously that's why the lockdown is just so terrifying because... Right now, in this moment, unless you can safely move in with a, a relative, which I think is, is worth a, a risk, you know, as long as you're, if you haven't seen anyone else, you know, for 14 days, if you can do that. In normal times, I mean, I, I remember hearing uh, someone told me once that a woman started just by taking the smallest things from her home when she was planning to leave her. So she, she was planning to leave her abusive partner. She, the first thing she took was a fork. And she just took the fork and put it in her mum's house. And it was just this mental building and preparation. Because I think the other thing to understand is that you will speak to women who have been horrifically abused and they will still talk about being in love with their former partners. So it's not a case of storming out in a rage and never wanting to look back again. Um, I think a lot of... Um, if you have the access to it, is counselling and therapy has helped uh, that particular friend I was telling about. That that helped her see what relationship she was in in a way that her friends couldn't, and that was a massive game changer. And yes, she, proper impartial advice that isn't sort of tied into any subjective feelings that a friend might have about a, a, you know someone's boyfriend. What was really strong there is also thinking about the parents in this. Um, you know, our parents have very strong, potentially have very strong ideas about the sort of people we should be with. And the values that they have are very pervasive to us. So they should be wealthy or they should be well positioned in community or in society. And if they are that and they're charming, then actually that is really difficult to break. Because actually you want to please your parents as well as wanting to please this other person. And you feel almost stuck. I mean, what I wanted to get to at some point was talking about yeah, reproductive un control and coercive um, control where actually this wanting to please or this um, uh, this wanting to control from the other side is, is even taken to the extent of wanting to get someone pregnant. I mean, that to me is, is one of the most overlooked uh, areas of, of abuse. And when I have spoken to women who have endured this, it's absolutely horrific. If you have just got married 
and your partner wants a baby, then how do you refuse them a baby? And your grand- grandparents want babies, and everyone wants babies, and isn't that what you should be doing? And, okay, like, this woman was like, oh, no, hang on, I don't think I want a baby with this man. But so controlling uh, that he was, was that she actually... Uh, that one of the women I spoke to went down a path. They didn't actually have IVF, but she went down through a lot of invasive testing. And this happened to her five years ago. And in those five years, she still hasn't been back to a health professional because of the fact that she was enduring these sorts of tests because her partner insisted. And actually for her, the date for the beginning of the IVF had got set and it gave her a deadline. That was the thing that got her out. The really subtle thing there was that in that story was also the fact that he attended every healthcare appointment with yes. her, all of the investigations. So he appears on the surface to be a very supportive partner, yes. and therefore that's yes. probably what will be seen perhaps by the healthcare professional. They'll be Absolutely. seeing someone who's turning up to every appointment, going, "Isn't this person charming? Isn't this person yes. lovely?" Whereas actually, it just meant yes. that this a you know, woman was isolated and couldn't actually have a moment to express her dismay or Absolutely. what she actually wanted. If he's in the room, then then how... Um, he was threatening to throw her out of windows at certain points. So your life is at stake. You know, I don't know what the solution is, is in that situation, I think. But we do have to be aware, at least, that this is happening, that abusers will take control and use it in any way. Nothing is off limits if you're in an abusive relationship. The strength it takes these women, I mean, I'm always, whenever I speak to a woman who has endured abuse, the thing that always, I, I never stop sort of being in awe of, is just complete admiration for their strength. Because if you can get yourself out, and not all women can, and that doesn't mean those women weren't strong, but the women who have managed to remove themselves from someone who is essentially surveying them 24 hours a day and will use psychological and physical acts of terror, domestic abuse is domestic terrorism. You know, that is the environment that they create in a home. If you find a way to get out of that, um, it's just remarkable. Um, and that's why these women need, and, and men need, need the help that, any help that we can give them because the stakes to do that are so high. And I find, I'm finding that very difficult at the moment with the messaging from the government is, of course, domestic abuse victims can leave. Where are they going to go? Where are they going to go with two children? Yeah. Like, if you're not giving them hotel rooms, if you're not, if there's, there's not enough room in refuges, we know that. Uh, they're mass- massively underfunded as it is. So where, where do you think these people are going to go and live? Um, so that's why, you know, I feel very strongly, you know, another reason to keep talking about this is to keep putting pressure. We will see more fatalities. You know, I think we've seen nine, nine dead in domestic abuse incidents, and we will see more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello. 
Are there other more secretive, safe ways to contact these charities for help? Refuge have a contact form that you could fill in and then you can agree a password, a safe word, a code word, and then they can call you back at a safer time and use the password. There's an amazing app called Bright Sky, which looks like a weather app on your phone and that will link you to services, but it can also record incidences of violence or abuse without storing them on your phone so that if a partner then got through your phone, they wouldn't find them, but you still have them as evidence. And actually to get convictions, you, you, you need quite a lot of evidence. Um, but in terms of secret things, like uh, France have been doing some very good things. You can go into chemists in France and use a uh, code word, and they will alert the police for, on your behalf, and that has successfully happened. Parts of France have also set up pop-up counselling stalls in grocery stores. So if you're being able to get out to a grocery store on your own, there is somebody there who can just give you support. Seems like France is really ahead of the curve. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Australia's given a lot of money, actually, to the issue. I mean, they are countries... Spain has got a similar uh, system with the code, and they are countries that have high instances of domestic violence. Um, I was really amazed. I was really impressed by Greenland and their prime minister announced for, for two weeks, I think, the ban of the sale of alcohol. And the reason he did this, he explicitly said, was for the children. He said, I'm thinking of the safety of the children. So that to me, that was because often children are really the hidden victims in these uh, situations. They're not recognised in law in the same way, yet we know they have uh, lifelong repercussions. That impacts society as well. So if you're going to be kind of purely economic about this, if you actually helped children now, you'd probably save a lot of money in the terms terms of the social support that goes into the number of children who witness, you don't not even necessarily like, directly experience, but who witness domestic violence, who become addicts. You are as likely, if you have witnessed domestic abuse as a child to have PTSD as a soldier returning from war my god and yet we do not recognize mm. children in that way I think it seems extraordinary this sort of journey where there is a sort of gaslighting at the throughout the relationship there's the uh, reproductive control where stealthing and removing of condoms without consent or yes. damaging the condoms or withholding the pills that people take for contraception, um, which is why it's so important for people to potentially be discussing manners of contraception which aren't visible, for example, like the injection, yes. etc., where you can't tell. And I think that's really helpful for women to just let them know there are ways of achieving contraception that doesn't require a visible implant in your arm or coil strings or tablets to be around the house. So please do contact us if that's what you want, because we can work out a way of doing that for you. But then that moves into you know the, the sort of the, well, there's the the dual ways of ultimate control of forcing someone to have a child to get pregnant and then have a child and that child then is a lasting reminder of the perpetrator of that abuse and then the child is a manner of control again to control I mean it's it's utterly utterly um, sort of in some ways extraordinary sort of mastermind way of 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 of, of lifelong control over someone but what really strikes me is. I mean, one, what is the proportion of men that are doing this compared to women in terms of abusers? But also, what are the circumstances? What's the crucible that generates abusers? You know, because, because abusers are people and they, and they came from somewhere. And, and what are the key things that develop people into that abusive behavior? I mean, I, abuse is a gender crime. 
There are things in our society that mean um, that women are more vulnerable. There are power structures, you know, that I think we, we do have to recognise that abuse towards women and girls is, is a huge problem. But that's not to say it doesn't happen to men. The year ending March 2019, 1.6 million women experienced domestic abuse compared to the 786,000 men. So, you know, that's not a small number. They tend to be hit the hardest when it comes to funds being cut. You know, there is there is less support out there. And I think something I've heard, especially for male victims, is a lot of the shame of it is, is even greater. There is less reporting to the police. And that is in one hand because, yes, there are less incidences. But also I imagine there is a greater amount of shame calling the police as a man. So I think it is really important to, to flag. But I think... You know, there are a lot of men's rights groups out there who use the stats of domestic violence to basically abuse and control and harass women. And I think there is nothing wrong in recognising that this problem impacts women more. And of course, it doesn't take anything away from the other victims. But we have to see, to understand the abuse and to tackle the abuse, we have to understand its nature and why it happens. Yeah. And then I think your second question is a very tricky one to answer. How do you become abusers? I mean, we know there's a lot of evidence to suggest that people who were abused go on to abuse um, or who witnessed abuse go on to abuse. It's, it's learned behaviour. It's a kind of sense of, well, this is what's always happened. I've seen abuse described. Uh, Karen McCluskey, who's an amazing Scottish woman, who's kind of revolutionised the understanding of knife crime, actually, in um, Glasgow, in his uh, work with... Uh, gangs in LA and all around the world talking about knife crime because she she brought it down. One of the things she did was to see knife crime as a public health issue. And she talked about how it would be passed down through the family, like a, almost like a, a, a kind of illnesses, you know, passed down. In, huh. And that understanding of it really was central to how she tackled it. And I think for some perpetrators, that is, there's, there's, there's value in seeing that in the same way. You know, well, this this is just what happened, and this is how it was brought up, and this is how you're meant to be, um, and this is very normal. It's cultural, almost. Yes, in in some mm. communities, we also have a culture that's still, you know, yes, the response to this has been remarkable, I think, uh, to domestic abuse. But sort of a few weeks ago, there was a boxer who I I don't actually know his name, but he was recorded using a punch bag and explaining how to knock your missus out. I think he called her. Wow. You know, we have we still have a culture where violence towards women and girls is, is very easy to access. It's very easy to see. It's very normalised. You know, it wasn't that long ago that Topshop would call white vests wife beaters. So I think there are a lot of um, external factors that can perhaps suggest to some individuals that this is OK. But where does that profound need to control and manipulate come from? I don't know. And there are a lot of schemes to try and rehabilitate perpetrators. I think um, part of my concern for the perpetrators, and it seems odd that I should be concerned about it, but actually that's part of my job as a doctor. I need to look after Mm. both groups. Mm. And often the perpetrator has had significant abusive events in their own life, which has led to the challenges of their own behaviour, which is then brought on again. And so a lot of it, I think, is is about seeing how can we stop this happening from generation to generation to generation. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I agree with you entirely that, you know, that's why I think it comes back to the education, right? 
that even if you are in a home or you come from a family or a culture that suggests this kind of behaviour is normal or normalised or permitted in some way, that there is an educational outlet somewhere ideally in schools, that would, would just say there is another way and perhaps this, this is why this isn't right. The conversations around consent remind me very similar to this. Pushing against someone's ability to consent is very much abuse. So this is part yes. of that conversation. It's about you know, accepting someone else's autonomy. And if that is taught at yes. a very young age, hopefully we can deconstruct these structures, for want of a better word, yes. that, 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 yeah. that make it easier for people to persist yes. with their abusive behaviour. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you have that coupled with what we're seeing right now, which is this very public, widespread outcry that this is wrong, for so long, domestic abuse was just hidden. Nobody talked about it and nobody said it was wrong. And jokes were made about it. So hopefully we will start to see new generations of young men and women who understand that this is a problem and however they're feeling about it, you know, there's help, but there there is a clearer guidance of what a healthy relationship looks like. Which in turn will change legislation. Yes, exactly, or at least enforce legislation because I think you can't, you can have legislation but you know there's lo- there's lots of legislation that just doesn't work you need you need legislation and the culture to to work together where we've seen the biggest change in attitude has actually come down to things like the archers or eastender storylines or big little lies you know the stories of abuse in a way that people just wouldn't touch because they thought it was too depressing or they thought it only happened to working class people on an estate. When we started to tell more realistic stories, um, you know, and the Helen storyline in The Archers was all about that drip, 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 drip I was talking about. And yeah. the parents not noticing and nobody else really realising what was going on. And that, you know, I mean, I'm pretty sure they haven't had listening figures like that since. You know, it completely captured the nations so I think that's been a massive help too in the, in, the, in how we tell this story and I, and for me that's really important because often I feel when you write or talk about domestic abuse you're talking to very like-minded people you're, you're preaching to the converted and actually it's about explaining this landscape to people who aren't in the conversations that I'm in you know or don't just follow women's groups on Twitter. When victims are calling up um, companies like Refuge or Women's Aid, obviously not everyone will be in a situation where they can leave the home. Mm -hmm. So um, do you know what kind of advice people might be given to de-escalate or self-manage the situation whilst at home? There is advice on um, websites like Refuge and Women's Aid of, of how to manage a situation like this. And a lot of it is about putting yourself in the safest parts of your home so perhaps a place that has access to a door or a window that you could get out of never putting yourself kind of I guess with your your back to a corner making sure your car is parked facing out of the drive so you can get away very quickly making sure you've got coins on you at all time because if you were then trying to escape and perhaps they'd taken your wallet you would have enough money for a bus which are still running and trains which are still running and actually um, one of the big uh, railways have announced that they will pay funds for women's journeys to refuges at the moment. The problem with abusers is that um, the very nature, one of their most powerful, uh, one of the most powerful things they employ is their unpredictability. That is why living with them is so terrifying because you never know 
you never know what's going to set them off. They're, you could see no reason whatsoever. And that's part of the fear. You exist on eggshells. So a strategy for managing that is almost impossible. It's much more about employing things that will keep you and your family safe. Having a grab bag hidden somewhere, which might be very hard, but, you know, that has a change of clothes in. And if possible, alerting neighbours so that if you needed to get out, you could knock on a neighbour's door. In talking of neighbours, that is something everyone can do, which is to listen out. You know, I have genuinely spoken to women whose lives were saved because neighbours heard screaming and called the police. And so if you hear anything, call the police. So I think um, if you are in that situation, a lot of it is, is safety first. And then, of course, if you can continue to reach out to, to the few people that you can, continue to find emotional support, support if and where you can. Marisa's brilliant book, The Periodic Table of Feminism, is an essential guide to the feminist movement and the often unsung international figures who have shaped it. It was published by Penguin and is available from all good bookstores. If you or anyone you know have been affected by the issues in this episode, please reach out to Refuge or Women's Aid and look at our episode notes for further resources. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoy this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and helps to give the series a boost. Please do give us five stars. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and of course, pleasure. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.